Welcome to the Monument to Extraction Tour of the Albany Bulb. Before we get started, let me explain a few things. I'm Haley, one of the University of California Berkeley students who made this tour for you. Later, you'll hear my classmates guide you through eight art installations here at the Albany Bulb. It should take about an hour and a half to complete the tour, including the walk back to the parking lot, and you'll have lots of opportunities to rest. Some of you listening may have downloaded the Artivive Augmented Reality app. If you have, we'll let you know when it's time to use it. You'll switch back and forth between the audio and the Artivive app. The Artivive app will play a slideshow of a few photos or a few seconds of video. Some have sound and some don't. If your internet connection is weak, the augmented reality might not play correctly. But don't worry, it's just an extra. The main part of the tour is this audio and the physical art installations we've made. And by the way, you'll see QR codes at each site too. You can ignore those. They're for visitors who have not downloaded this audio, which you already have. So now that that's out of the way, our instructions start from the restrooms at the entrance to the park. It's a small tan building. There is only one restroom here, so you may want to use it now. And you should also know there's no drinking water anywhere at this park. If you need a moment to get to the restrooms, press pause now and press play again when you're there. That's where we begin. Are you at the restrooms? Good. Next, find the asphalt trail on the north side of the restroom. So if you're facing the water, the path is to the right of the restroom. Walk straight ahead on that trail away from the Berkeley Hills. You'll know you're going the right way if you see a grove of eucalyptus trees and some picnic tables on your left. Bear gently right. Walk another minute or so until you see some interpretive signs in an asphalt cul-de-sac. Then stop in front of those signs. As you walk, I'll tell you a little bit about the things we've made for you. Each art installation centers on two things. The materials found right here at the bulb and the materials extracted from far away and transformed by local industries. Can you guess what some of the materials and industries might be? This tour is part of a global environmental art project that is calling attention to mining, fossil fuel extraction, and climate change, and their impacts on humans and on the planet. The international project is called Extraction, Art on the Edge of the Abyss. You can check out their website for dozens more exhibitions from around the world. Our contribution to this global art project is called Monument to Extraction, Walking California at the Albany Bulb Landfill. Yes, the Albany Bulb is a landfill that later became a park. We think this mile-long landfill is a kind of a huge, unintentional monument, a monument to waste and environmental destruction. If we look at it carefully, it can help us understand the history, not just of the East Bay, but of California as a whole. In this audio tour, we'll guide you to each installation 
and at each site, you'll hear an audio story researched and read by a UC Berkeley student. Sometimes, we might prompt you to use your senses, to notice smells or sounds, to engage with the environment around you, and to notice the landscape near and far. Let's get started. Before we take you to the first installation, we're going to help you get acquainted with the place where you are. Take a deep breath and look around you. Where are you standing now? You should be at those signs in the asphalt cul-de-sac. If you still need a minute to get there, press pause now and join us again when you're there. Now that you're at those signs, turn around and look back toward the freeway. All of the land you're looking at, from the freeway all the way to the western end of the Albany Bulb, is human-made. This place was a construction debris dump from 1963 to 1983. In those days, people thought of the San Francisco Bay as a giant garbage can, and they wanted more land for urban development. So the entire shoreline was ringed with dumps like this one. Imagine what it smelled like. Now, take another deep breath. What do you smell today? Turn to face the water. The water you're looking at would have been mostly land if it weren't for the Save the Bay movement in the early 1960s. It stopped the large-scale filling of the bay through a path-breaking citizens movement. But this particular dump continued to operate even after filling was stopped in most other places, and the Albany Bulb was never fully covered over or capped. Let's get into our senses some more. Feel free to close your eyes and take a deep breath. With your eyes still closed, notice what you can hear right now. What's the farthest away sound you hear? What's the closest? Open your eyes. Look around you. We hope you'll use your senses with curiosity and playfulness on this tour. Feel free to pause the recording at any time to tap into what's around you. And pay attention. The Albany Bulb is full of hidden stories. Look west toward San Francisco, and you should see two parallel paths stretching into the distance. We'll be walking west on the dirt road on the right, the one that is higher up. Let's get going. Walk up the slope on the higher dirt road. You won't get to the first installation for a few minutes, so enjoy the walk. The entrance to the first installation, as with all the installations, will be marked with bright turquoise blue rocks. So just to be clear, you're not looking for a spot of blue here or there on a piece of concrete, but rocks about the size of footballs, completely painted turquoise blue. As you walk to the first installation, I'll tell you a little more about the history of this place. We are in Huchin, the unceded territory of the Chochenyo-speaking Ohlone people. Long before this landfill was here, these waters were their fishing grounds. All along the nearby shoreline, they lived on and tended the land. They also built shell mounds here. 
the shell mounds have been obliterated by urban development, but are not forgotten. And today, Ohlone people still live here and take an active part in life in the East Bay. As you walk up the path, you'll see some large slabs of concrete painted with portraits of George Floyd and others on your left. You'll find these concrete slabs all over the bulb. They were once floors or walls of buildings that were demolished and brought to the dump. For decades, artists have used them as canvases. Our first installation is on your left, about 100 feet past these portraits. You'll see two lines of rocks arranged in a curve, ushering you up a path that leads to a small seat. A few of those rocks will be painted that turquoise blue. Up the path, you'll find that painted seat and a mosaic on a big chunk of concrete near it. This is the first installation. As you walk and look for these small blue rocks, you'll see large chunks of concrete rubble on your left. See if you can identify whether the various pieces of concrete look like a floor, a wall, or a column. And then think about where concrete comes from. It comes from the earth. Concrete is made in part from sand and gravel, which are mined from rivers and ancient riverbeds. The concrete you're looking at might have bits of the Sierra Nevada mountains in it. And the bay water you're looking at, that comes from the mountains too. It's ocean water mixed with Sierra snowmelt, water that might have come from Central Valley rivers as far south as Bakersfield or as far north as Redding. This place is connected to all of California. At our first installation, we'll tell you about a local industry that helped connect the San Francisco Bay Area to mining in the Sierras, and the people who made it happen. When you reach the small blue rocks, turn left and walk a short distance along the small path and have a seat on the bench. You may need to press pause and press play again when you get there. Hi, I'm Carolina. Look to your right at the Golden Gate Bridge. Before the bridge was there, immigrants from around the world passed through that narrow opening between the hills by ship. Some of them came from China. Now look to your left and you'll see the Golden Gate Fields racetrack grandstand on a hill known as Swimming Point. In the late 1800s, this was a dynamite factory owned by the Giant Powder Company. The history of dynamite in the Bay Area is mostly forgotten but it was a leading high-tech industry of its day, and it supplied the mining industry all over the American West. Chinese immigrants made up the majority of laborers at the Giant Powder Company. People from China were legally forbidden to become naturalized citizens. They were prohibited from living in many neighborhoods. They were given the most dangerous jobs in many industries. They built railroads, levees, and handled explosives. In dynamite factories, they were assigned to work with the most volatile materials, especially nitroglycerin. Handwritten company ledgers show that they were paid much less than what white workers were paid. From the 1880s through 1905, explosions at the site killed scores of workers. Most of the casualties were Chinese people. Many newspaper accounts gave the names of the white workers, but listed only the number of Chinese killed. But in one article, we learn about a man named Hong Loi. He was 47 years old, married, and a native of China. He died on August 11, 1887. The Giant Powder Company stated that they very much regretted his death. They noted Hong Loi had the dangerous job of watching the utensils 
and tools used in the manufacture of nitroglycerin. The reporter wrote, He is described as a person who took the utmost care with his job and was a key part of averting accidents at the factory. Eventually, local complaints drove the dynamite factories away. The giant powder company moved its factory to its final location, Point Pinole. Today, people bet on racehorses where laborers were once put their lives on the line to supply the mining industry and the growth of California. Hang Loi, An Oing, Yen Fu, Wan Wei, A Quanox, Ma Wan, and A Fork. These are just some of the many names which should be remembered. To learn more about the history of workers and the explosive industry, you can visit our website, monumentsextraction.org. Hi, I'm Cho. When you're ready, walk back to the dirt road and continue walking west, away from the Berkeley Hills. Keep walking a few minutes on the dirt road until you see a bench painted with poppies behind a circle of real poppies on your left. Go sit on the bench and look back toward the Berkeley Hills. Look again at the racetrack grandstand. Imagine that spot 130 years ago when it was bustling with workers packing dynamite into canisters. Now look to the left at the part of the Berkeley Hills framed by two bushes in the foreground. You should be able to see the pointed spire of the Campanile Tower on the UC Berkeley campus. Imagine what kind of force it would take to smash the windows of all the buildings on the campus at once. On the morning of July 9, 1892, workers at Fleming Point accidentally ignited the materials they were using. A sequence of seven explosions killed everyone there. According to a newspaper report, the force of the shock was sufficient to destroy the works absolutely and entirely and was felt within a radius of 30 to 40 miles. Hundreds of homes in Oakland were damaged. At UC Berkeley, four miles southeast of Fleming Point, the blast shattered nearly every glass window on campus instantly. The university had a major role in developing the American mining industry. The UC Berkeley College of Mining was once the largest school of its kind in the world. The university was founded in 1868, during the era of hydraulic gold mining. In the early days of the gold rush, individual miners panned for Sierra gold by hand, but this method was soon replaced by hydraulic mining technology. California became an industrial environment filled with wage laborers employed in capital-intensive mining industries. Workers blasted high-pressure water cannons into ancient riverbeds and mountainsides to loosen the ore. Hydraulic mining pushed huge amounts of mud into the streams that flowed out from the Sierra. The sediment, which was filled with mercury, coated the bottom of the San Francisco Bay about three feet deep. The Giant Powder Company was the first dynamite manufacturing firm in the United States. The dynamite manufactured here in the East Bay had a huge impact on the extraction of materials throughout the American West and beyond. It was shipped to mines in Nevada, Montana, and Wyoming. If mining seems far away from you, look at the phone in your hand. Everything in it was mined or pulled from the earth in some way. Aluminum, gold, copper, silver, platinum, tungsten, lithium, neodymium, dysprosium, praseodymium, silicon, and petroleum. Look again at the UC Berkeley Campanile. Think about the university's role in advancing the science and industry of mining. Berkeley's many Nobel Prize winners are honored in the name of Alfred Nobel, the inventor of dynamite. 
To learn more about the history of dynamite, visit our website, monumenttoextraction.org. Now pause this audio tour, open up your Artivive app, and point it at the mosaic of dynamite sticks, and a video will start playing. When you're done, press play again. Hi, I'm Kim. Hi, I'm Roella. Let's keep going. Pivot and walk directly across the dirt road and look north toward Richmond. You'll see a mosaic framing two Rosie the Riveters in red kerchiefs under a tall frame of fennel stalks. Look past the mosaic with the Rosies and notice the houses near the water. The suburban housing you're looking at today used to be the biggest shipyards on the West Coast. During World War II, industrialist Henry J. Kaiser built shipyards here. They drew 100,000 workers from across the U.S. Women and people of color were included in ways they never had been. It wasn't easy. There was a lot of resistance from many unions. In the end, though, people migrating to wartime industries transformed the Bay Area labor force. Wartime workers faced a dire housing shortage, and the federal government requisitioned land for defense worker housing along a new railway. Imagine trains moving along the shoreline from Richmond south to Berkeley, transporting wartime workers from work to home. Follow the train lines 180 degrees to your right. Find the red sign of the Target store located to the left of the racetrack grandstand just across the freeway. Behind the Target is present-day University Village, which is owned by UC Berkeley. Today, it's student housing. At the end of World War II, this area housed nearly 2,000 families of workers in wartime industries. The huge development was called Kodonis's Village, and it was much bigger than University Village today. It stretched from south of Gilman Street, where the REI store is, almost to Buchanan Street. When the federal government proposed wartime public housing on this land, there was stiff opposition from the cities of Albany and Berkeley. Local residents objected to an expected influx of black people, but wartime needs overcame local pushback. At first, the housing was segregated. Black workers and their families were sent to live on the more polluted industrial west side. But after the war, a housing manager named David Kincaid helped integrate the village. There were shared community facilities like a child care center and recreation areas that were used by people of all races. Neighbors of all ethnicities got together to plan clubs and activities for children. Gradually, though, most of the white families moved out of the federal housing and into apartments and houses all over the Bay Area. Black families had a harder time leaving Cordonese's village because so many landlords and homeowners in the East Bay refused to rent or sell to them. Official government policies, such as redlining, also limited where black families could buy homes. As white tenants moved out of Cordonese's village, the population became mostly black. The cities of Albany and Berkeley urged the federal government to shut down the public housing. The public housing on the Berkeley side of Cordonese's village was demolished. On the Albany side, the University of California turned the apartments into housing for married students and their families starting in 1956. The supposedly temporary wartime housing remained in use for more than 50 years after the end of the war. 
Bit by bit, the World War II era apartments were replaced with new housing. In University Village today, streets with names like Liberty Ship and Kincaid Way are reminders of what happened here. The Berkeley side of the Cordonese's Village site is now a light industrial and shopping area with lots of brew pubs. There is a new housing crisis in the Bay Area, but unlike during World War II, the federal government is not stepping in to help in a major way. The Berkeley streets where Cordonese's Village used to be are filled with RVs and encampments of unhoused people. And here at the Albany Bulb, a community of unhoused people lived until they were evicted in 2014. To read more about World War II history and housing, visit MonumentExtraction.org. Hi, I'm Brody. Now continue walking west further away from the Berkeley Hills along the Sturt Road. Next, we'll hear the local history of oil. In the early 20th century, Japan's drive for oil led it to invade much of Asia. Then, it bombed Pearl Harbor, which drew the U.S. into World War II. So it was the world's thirst for oil that helped change the sleepy East Bay shoreline into a major industrial powerhouse. Imagine Hawaii and Japan just out past the Golden Gate to your left. Feel the breeze on your face? Imagine the global winds that shaped this place. Along the path to your right, look out for a bush just as tall as a person. Just behind it is a small bench. Sit on this bench and look across at the spot where the shipyards used to be. You will see a hill covered in reddish-brownish tanks. You are looking at the third largest oil processing facility in California, the Richmond Chevron Refinery. Without oil, the materials of the Albany landfill would not exist. The refinery was originally established in Alameda in 1880. It started as the Pacific Coast Oil Company. Then, a few years later, it became known as Standard Oil Company. In 1976, the Richmond plant gained the Chevron name through a corporate merger. Look at the tanks and consider how this industry has changed the world. Oil has seeped into every aspect of our life, even into the palm of our hands. Your smartphone wouldn't be possible without petroleum. Your shoes and eyeglasses and clothes were manufactured and transported with the help of these products. The refinery now engulfs 3,000 acres of rolling hills and flats. Chevron is the city's largest employer. The people of the city live with the pollution from the plant. The plant is here because it's convenient for ocean-going tankers to dock in this wharf. Oil comes from around the world. It also comes from California. California schoolchildren studied the gold rush, but we ignore the oil rush. California grew up on oil, especially in towns like Los Angeles, Huntington Beach, and Bakersfield. Kern County is the most productive oil county in the United States. Turn and look out toward the Golden Gate. Crude oil from around the world comes in and gets processed in Richmond and other Bay Area places. It gets turned into gasoline, jet fuel, diesel, and lubricants. It goes back out through the Golden Gate to the make things we use, like the steel you see at the bulb as rebar and slag, the asphalt and road surfaces, and roof shingles that were dumped here, or even in the polymers and the paint that artists used to give this bulb a splash of color. You can read an article about local oil processing at monumenttoextraction.org. Hi, I'm Madeline. 
Keep walking west along the dirt road until you see a distinctive tree on your left. It has thick, low branches stretching left and right. Look for a mosaic on a chunk of concrete near it. As you walk toward the tree, see if you can find chunks of concrete or other things made with energy from petroleum. And use your ears. Listen for the furthest sound you can hear and the closest sound. Do you hear any trains? The freeway? You can turn off the audio now to listen better while you walk. When you find the tree, turn the audio back on. To the left of the road, you should be looking at a tree with a lot of personality. There is a mosaic in front of it. Scan it with your Artivive app to discover what our next story is about, then return to the audio tour. Do the twin low branches of the tree look inviting? Feel free to sit on the low tree branch facing the dirt road. Look back east towards the freeway that runs along the shoreline. You'll see cars and maybe freight trains or Amtrak trains running along the water. It looks almost like a miniature train set, doesn't it? All that infrastructure takes a lot of concrete. Concrete makes travel, mobility, and urban expansion possible. Highway expansion made sprawling suburbs possible on the other side of those hills. There is a lot of concrete at the bulb, because this was a dump specifically for construction debris. A lot of it probably came from transportation projects. During the heyday of highway building after World War II, houses got torn down to make way for freeways. Old roads got torn up to make new ones. The debris ended up in places like the Albany landfill. The freeway you see in front of you used to be a highway with street intersections. It was called the East Shore Highway and was completed in the 30s as a New Deal project. It was rebuilt as the elevated East Shore Freeway in the late 1950s. Before we got so dependent on cars, the electric key system transported people all over the East Bay in streetcars. They ran way out into the bay on long piers. People completed the trip to San Francisco by ferry. After the Bay Bridge was built in 1936, key trains ran on its lower deck. The key system streetcar shut down in 1948 and the trains to San Francisco ended in 1958. Next came BART. More houses needed to be torn down and dumped in landfills to build the above ground portions in places like Albany and El Cerrito. Maybe some of those houses ended up here. The city of Albany didn't want a BART station, so the trains stop in Berkeley and El Cerrito. Most likely, your journey to the Bulb today would have been impossible without concrete in the highways, sidewalks, roads, bike paths, and public transit lines. You can learn more about transportation at the Monument to Extraction website. Hey, I'm Julia. Hi, I'm Luana. Walk west along the dirt road. This will be the longest walk of the tour. 
Keep heading west for a few minutes until you reach a crossroads and a rustic bench with three armrests. You've got a few minutes before you get there, so in the meantime, use your nose. What do you smell? Pause the audio and keep walking until you see the bench, then restart the audio. You should see a bench with three armrests. You're at a fork in the road. Bear gently left, but don't make a sharp turn, and keep walking. At a park-style trash can, at the moment it's painted white, turn left again. Head down the dirt road for about 50 feet. You might see San Francisco out ahead, across the bay. Walk toward the water, but only for a short bit. There will be a sign with park rules on a very tall pole on the left side of the road. Right across from this sign, on the other side of the road, a small path leads into the vegetation on the right. You should see some rocks painted blue here. Turn right here and walk up the small path. You will find yourself in the middle of three structures made of wood and bricks. You may pause the audio if you need time to find them. Press play again when you do. Look around at the bricks near your feet. Underneath the grass and dirt you see, there are even more. The land you're standing on is actually built from piles and piles of bricks dumped at the bulb after demolition projects. Not a lot of people know this, but the Bay Area was filled with brick manufacturers in the early 1900s. These bricks are full of stories about community. Look through the first structure on the left through one of its open chambers. You should be able to see San Francisco in the distance. Pause the audio if you need more time to find it. Look at the city skyline in the distance. In 1906, San Francisco was devastated by an earthquake. The earthquake left many people homeless and set the city on fire. San Francisco turned to brick companies to help rebuild its community. Use your Artivive app to scan the miniature black cutout to hear more, then come back to the audio tour. Approach the second, smaller wooden structure and look through one of its chambers towards Richmond. Pause the audio until you find it. You are now looking towards Richmond. After the 1906 earthquake, several brick manufacturers set up shop in the area. Their bricks were used for buildings like the sand-colored Ford assembly plant, which should be in your line of sight. The Richmond Press Brick Company opened a branch exactly where you're looking now. The company was producing 30,000 bricks per day, with only 20 men working the plant. All it takes to make brick is clay, water, heat, and a bit of industrial magic. Right here in Richmond, the company would blast the shale and feed it into grinding machinery. The powdered clay was then mixed with water, cut into bricks, and heated. Scan the framed black ink drawings to see the brick production process, then return to this audio. Contractors used bricks like these to build San Francisco's Palace Hotel and many other commercial buildings. This all happened after the 1906 earthquake. However, bricks are complicated. They did help rebuild communities, but they also divided them. 
Turn to your right and find the brick mound labeled chair. Pause the audio until you find it. Sit on it and look through the structure in front of you. Do you see the homes in the lovely Berkeley Hills? Today, some of these homes contain brick chimneys and neighborhoods contain beautiful brick pillars. But there is a darker side to this story. The city of Berkeley actually pioneered racially exclusionary zoning. It outlawed apartments and duplexes in some parts of the city so that single-family neighborhoods would not be invaded by lower-income people of color. And real estate developers put racially exclusive covenants in the single-family districts, proudly advertising that no Negroes or Asiatics could live there. At the same time, the federal government redlined neighborhoods where racial minorities lived, starving these districts of capital. These neighborhoods would not have had homes that used bricks, but instead were built of cheap material meant to last only a little while. Bricks like the ones around you are part of that story. Look toward the Berkeley Hills. To the right, at the foot of the hills in the Claremont Court Residential District, similar bricks were used to mark the entrance of a racially exclusive neighborhood in which only whites were allowed to live. These pillars still stand today as a testimony to an era of division. You can read more about brick manufacturing and housing segregation at monumenttoextraction.org. Scan the miniature black cutout of a gate to learn more, then return to the audio. Hi, I'm Emily. Next, walk back to the main dirt road on the small path you walked in on. Keep walking downhill toward the water. You'll see a mural painted on the back of a large bench straight ahead. Instead of walking all the way to the bench, Look for a small path to the left marked with blue rocks. Walk down the little path and look for a brick planter with a small tree. Near the tree, do you see any plants with feathery leaves that look a little bit like dill? They're fennel. Touch one. Gently work the feathery greens between your fingers. Give it a smell. Licorice. Now look across the water to the flatlands of Berkeley and Oakland. Fennel grows there too, out of sidewalk cracks and in the hills. Today, most of the food growing in Alameda County is either weed-like and wild, like fennel and blackberries, or it's cultivated in raised beds, little gardens, mostly a hobby. But agriculture used to be a big part of the local economy. The land you're looking at was the Rancho San Antonio. After the missions decimated the Ohlone population, Spanish-speaking colonial Californios raised cattle here in the early 19th century. Later, Anglo settlers striped southern Alameda County with rows of fruit trees. What later became Silicon Valley was a vast plain of orchards. On your way here, you passed railroad tracks. Those are key. They connected the state to the rest of the country, and that paved the way for industrialized agriculture. Farming exploded in the Central Valley, and canneries bloomed across the Bay Area, and that food was packed into rail cars and sent out across the nation. These innovations in food preservation brought delicious nutrients to countless people for the first time. Look over to San Francisco. You might have visited Fisherman's Wharf. There you can see the Del Monte Cannery Number no. 1, original building, even today. Now look past Cesar Chavez Park, where the Berkeley Marina is. Just beyond that is the Pixar Campus in Emeryville. 
That used to be the site of Del Monte's cannery number 35, a massive brick plant where thousands of immigrants worked punishing hours, the skin on their hands made raw by the acids of peaches and other produce they preserved day in and day out. There were dozens of food packing companies in the cities along the bay. Some of them banded together to market their goods as the California Fruit Canners Association. They put fruit inside cans and the Del Monte label on the outside. They told you that the best fruit came from California. And you can have it. You in New York, Minnesota, Ohio can buy it from us any time of year and at a price everyone can afford. America's relationship to food was turned inside out. We stopped buying fruit and started buying brands. We looked for logos on cans instead of waiting for the season when we could pick up a peach and feel its fuzz under our fingers and squeeze it and smell it and try to get the sweetest ones. Most of us live far away from where our food grows. We throw away the boxes and cans it comes in. The seasons are irrelevant. We get what we want any time of year on demand. The food comes in cans, the cans come in crates, and the crates travel the world in 40-foot containers on giant ships. And here before you is a little peach tree. Feel free to give it a splash of water if you have any to spare. You can learn more about East Bay food processing at the Monument to Extraction website. Hi, I'm Heidi. Hi, I'm Amy. Now walk over to the painting on the back of the bench that faces the water. It depicts the cranes at the Port of Oakland and the Bay Bridge. You'll see a big round metallic brown chunk on the ground. That's steel slag, a byproduct of steel making. Touch it. Feel how rough it is. Now look up to the left of the Bay Bridge. You see those giant white cranes? They're made of steel. So are the shipping containers they lift by the thousands. The Port of Oakland has been among the busiest ports in the United States since the 1960s. It has seen big changes. Shipping used to be slow and expensive. Longshoremen manually handled all the cargo. It was hard work, labor-intensive. A powerful union, the International Longshoremen's and Warehousemen's Union, or ILWU, protected those jobs. Then, in the 1950s, an East Coast trucker named Malcolm McLean changed global shipping forever. He figured out that if you pack steel containers full of goods, put those containers on ships, you could use a crane to put that whole container onto a truck without unpacking anything. Very efficient. Meanwhile, on the West Coast, Matson, a steamship company based in San Francisco, and other companies also started shifting to containerized shipping. These new shipping technologies exponentially increased the flow of consumer goods. But containerization wiped out longshoremen's jobs. The ILWU held a massive strike for job security in 1971. They stopped all Pacific Coast ports for 130 days. But containerization was here to stay. That had impacts far beyond the port. Good longshoremen's jobs had been a part of the economic engine that fueled West Oakland. West 7th Street was called the Harlem of the West, filled with lively jazz bars and a buzzing nightlife. But jobs started moving out of Oakland. Urban renewal ripped gashes through black neighborhoods and overhead BART construction and other government projects killed off the life of West 7th Street. 
The demolition debris from the construction of BART was used to build more container terminals at the port. Look at the cranes of the port. Think about them when you press that add to cart button when you're shopping online. West Oakland is just one casualty. Think of all the people replaced by those cranes. Look again at the slag in front of you. Like everything here at the bulb, it was thrown away when it wasn't needed anymore. You can learn more about container shipping on our website. Now walk around and take a seat on the bench. What do you feel? A breeze? The sun? Take a deep breath. Feel free to close your eyes and notice the sounds and smells. Now look out at the rubble in front of you spilling outward toward the water and the San Francisco skyline. Take a moment to appreciate how much goes into creating the built world we live in and its cost. Right now where you're sitting, you've got a front row seat to sea level rise and climate change. And you're sitting in an unfinished park whose next chapter remains to be written. What does the future hold for this spot and for the planet? If you'd like more information about the histories you've heard, visit Monument to Extraction Org. This tour was created by students in the Future Histories Lab at UC Berkeley, part of the Global Urban Humanities Initiative and funded by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and a Creative Discovery Grant from UC Berkeley Arts and Design. It was made in collaboration with the nonprofit organization Love the Bulb and made by the class called Ghosts and Visions, listed as Art 160, City Planning 190. The students in this class are Amy Dang, Heidi Dong, Madeline Frey, Luana Guerreau, Haley Gray, Emily Guy, Carolina Hernandez, Kimberly Pack, Julia Park, Brody Paulo, Choyang Ponsar, and Roella Toy. The course was taught by Susan Moffat with graduate student instructor Melody Chang. We'd like to extend our gratitude to Cheryl Barton, Finn Ferdun, Donna Graves, Gabriel Caprellian, Seth Lunine, Vincent Medina, Susan Schwarzenberg, Casey Smith, Wayne Smith, Karen Sorensen, Olivia Ting, Leanne Tatangos, and Louis Trevino. Special thanks to Lynn Jones and Lisa Norman for assistance with the mosaics. Audio production and sound design by me, Haley Gray. Music by John Bartman and Loyalty Freak Music. <laughs> <laughs>